Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, let's get started. All right, Presbyterians, too much fellowship. Too much fellowship. Real, real in the fellowship. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is David Bruner, which all of you certainly know by now. This is the last week of Long Story Short class. I think this is week 16. So we are ending our tour of Holy Scripture by looking at the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, we're going to end with a bang. It's going to be exciting. I'm actually really, um, it really excited to teach tonight on this book. Um, before we dive in and talk more about what we're going to do tonight, let me pray for us. Good and gracious God, Father in heaven, thank you for those who have gathered here tonight. Thank you for the spring sunshine that comes in through the windows of the sanctuary, for the beautiful green grass, and for this moment when we can set aside our cares and listen to the message of Holy Scripture. Thank you for the witness of the book of Revelation, as challenging as it can be, and we pray that you would teach us more about you and your love as we gather tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first of all, congratulations, you made it. We're, we're about to cross the finish line. Um, we've journeyed all the way from Genesis to Revelation, so thank you for joining me on this journey, and congratulations on everything you've learned. I've heard from a lot of you that the, the class has been really stimulating and has helped introduce you to a broader swath of the Bible than you knew previously and also helped you go a little deeper in your understanding of Scripture. This is exactly what we wanted to do. I've learned a ton as well, so it's been fun to journey alongside you. So tonight we're focusing on the book of Revelation. Now the most important thing you can know about Revelation is that it's singular. It is revelation, it is not revelations. Now if you, if you go to certain sections of the church, I think among Baptists, it may officially be revelations. But for Presbyterians like us, it's always revelation. There's only one revelation. That's the most important thing. In light of the often confusing nature of revelation, it is appropriate for us to ask our question. And what is the question we always ask at the beginning of this class? How do we get here? Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm really gonna miss putting David Byrne in his enormous suit up on a screen. Seriously, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I may have to start working him into my sermon slides to give myself an excuse. And again, I realize this is probably funnier and more enjoyable for me than it is for many of you. I'm fully aware of that fact, but I love it, so I'm not going to stop. Anyway, I, I should wear this. Don't tempt me with a good time. Don't tempt me with a good time. Can you imagine? Can you, I do, we already have the Troy House. That's right. You saw it in Becca's sermon this past weekend. Um, it's, it's very possible. It's very possible. Okay. What the heck is the book of Revelation? Let me give you some very basic background. Um, because Revelation is a book that's difficult to understand in many ways, I'm going to do a little bit more talking tonight than usual. I hope you won't hold that against me. One of the most important things that we've paid attention to this whole series is the question of genre. Whenever you're reading a book of the Bible, ask yourself, what genre of literature am I reading? The Bible is certainly more than merely literature, um, but it's not less than merely literature if that makes sense, right? Um, it, in its various books, it conforms to 
um, certain habitual shapes of the various literature it exemplifies. So the Psalms are poems. And if you read those poems expecting them to have the level of specificity of your car owner's manual, you're gonna be disappointed. Um, the Book of Kings is a narrative history. If you expect it to be a poem, you're gonna be disappointed. You know this. The first four books of the New Testament are Gospels. They focus on telling the good news of Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection. The middle and later section of the New Testament are all epistles. They're all letters written by Christian leaders to particular communities. Most of them are by Paul. Revelation doesn't fit neatly into either of those two categories. In this sense, it's a lot like the book of Acts, which we looked at recently as well. So Re Revelation has a lot to say about Jesus, but it's not a gospel. Revelation doesn't start out by saying, right, Jesus was born in this place and his parents were these people and then he did this thing. That's not what Revelation does. So it's not a gospel. It's clearly not an epistle. Um, it does contain um, a word for many different Christian churches, like many of the epistles do. And so if you read some of those early chapters of the book of Revelation, there are seven words to seven different churches, but there's a lot of other stuff going on in Revelation that is not... Um, epistolatory at all, not in letter form. So what the heck is it? Revelation is a genre to itself. It's a genre called apocalypse. That's the name of the genre of literature Revelation is. It's an apocalypse. Or you can say it's apocalyptic literature. So um, this is hinted at by the name. Apocalypse literally means unveiling or revealing. So, you know, if, you, if, if I disclose something important to you, oh, I'm going to wear the David Byrne big suit next week in church on Sunday, you might say, oh, Pastor Dave shared a really important revelation with me today, right? I disclosed something to you. I unveiled something to you. Uh, apocalyptic literature is literature where something is revealed or made plain, um, this is a quotation from a book called uh, The Oxford Companion to the Bible. And it's, you can see the quote. The apocalypse type of writing is a record of divine disclosures made known through the agency of angels, dreams, and visions. This already sounds like the book of Revelation, right? These may take different forms, an otherworldly journey in which the secrets of the cosmos are made known, or a survey of history often leading to an eschatological crisis. Eschatological means ultimate things, last things. So a crisis pertaining to the end of the cosmos, the final conclusion of the cosmos, of the cosmos in which the cosmic powers of evil are destroyed, the cosmos is restored, and Israel, or the righteous, is redeemed. That's a long definition, it's kind of a mouthful. For some of you, it may have raised as many questions as it answered, um, but the point is to say, apocalyptic is a type of literature that exhibits certain characteristic features. Would you like me to back up and read you that definition again? All right, because David Bebb Jones said read it again, we're gonna read it again. The apocalypse type of writing is a record of divine disclosures made known through the agency of angels, dreams, and visions. So you can see this right in Revelation 1, where John says, you know, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, 
and I had a vision, boom. And he starts talking about what he saw. Um, these may take different forms, an otherworldly journey in which the secrets of the cosmos are made known. So stay there for a second. So think of in Revelation 4, which we'll look at in a little bit, um, John is sitting around and all of a sudden, um, I think an angel appears to him and he is snatched up into heaven. So he has a physical sense of being transported from earth to God's throne room in heaven above. So this is an otherworldly journey. This is typical for the apocalypse type of literature. Or a survey of history leading to a crisis in which the cosmic powers of evil are destroyed. This is the latter half of the book of Revelation. So there's a lot about a cosmic struggle between God and God's people and evil and the people on the side of evil, and ultimately God is victorious. Um, so the point, this is a good description of what apocalyptic literature is, and it's a good description of the book of Revelation. Like, um, go back to the prophets. When we talked about the prophets, one way people routinely misread the prophets is by interpreting them as offering exclusively a word about the future. When in fact, the thing that motivates the prophets more often than not is a commentary on the present situation. The goal of every prophet is to call the Israel of their day and age back to faithfulness to God. In the same way, the book of Revelation is routinely misread by scrutinizing it in the finest details to um, decode what it might have to say about the future and ignoring what it says about its own present day and age. So for instance, lots of the book of Revelation is about Rome, the threatening imperial power that ruled the roost throughout the ancient world. Um, often this is um, done in an implicit way um, that can be hard to recognize at first, but it is there if you know what to look for. Revelation, so there are other examples of this genre of apocalyptic literature. So you find it in Daniel 7 through 12. So Daniel is one book in the Old Testament in which you find some apocalyptic literature. And that section of Daniel is there. So in, in Daniel, you, there is this very strange um very strange organization, right? Where you get stories like Daniel and the lion's den in the book of Daniel, and you also get this wild and crazy apocalyptic stuff, and it's all just there cheek by jowl. In the book of Isaiah, there are apocalyptic sections, chapters 24 through 27. The gospel of Mark famously has a very brief apocalyptic section in chapter 13. Biblical scholars actually call that the little apocalypse. And importantly, you'll, you don't have to read any of these, but these are the sorts of things that nerdy Bible professors love to read. There are these non-canonical or deuterocanonical works that are all apocalyptic in tone. So books like Ezra, Baruch, Enoch. Um, so what happens is Bible scholars learn a lot about Revelation by reading other apocalyptic works written basically around the same time. Let's talk about the form of apocalypse. You can see here the question, why is it so weird? This is one of the most basic questions people have about, about the book of Revelation. Why is Revelation so strange? 
Um, why does it contain bizarre images, subjects, and themes? Why isn't it more normal? That's always a great question to ask. Sometimes the most um, important questions are the, the ones that are the most simple or even naive. Um, Revelation would have been less strange to people in the ancient world who were accustomed to hearing, um, to encountering works in this genre. Um, but its particular imagery and form, the strangeness of it, are very much intentional and not accidental. So it's not as though the book of Revelation was written by someone who wrote a book about all sorts of crazy happenings on accident. This was written by a person who, with great intentionality, used this medium to point to Jesus Christ and point to the final victory of Jesus Christ at the end of everything. There's this wonderful quote from um, Flannery O'Connor that I've shared before. Flannery O'Connor was an American author. She lived in the South. And one of the things she said about her own writing was, to the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. So part of what's going on is in um, apocalyptic literature, including the book of Revelation, is a sort of abandoning of normal modes of communication and a turn to modes of communication, modes of writing that are startling, that are confusing, that are off-putting in some ways in order to get the attention of the reader and in order to get through to the reader. So remember way back when we looked at the prophets, right? Jeremiah does this. He puts on the yoke and walks around. Why? He's trying to get people's attention. He's trying to get through to them. There's something similar going on here in the book of Revelation. So um, to help you understand this, I have, a pretty I have what I hope is an interesting object lesson for us. It's only going to take a couple of minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to listen to two reasonably well-known songs by the classic British rock group, The Beatles. We're going to listen to two of those songs. And I want you to compare them. Um, and with each song, as we play it, I want you to ask yourself these three questions. What's the melody like? What's the instrumentation? And what is the message of this song? What's the melody like? What's the instrumentation? What's the message of this song? Um, some of you may know these songs by heart. Some of you may not know them at all. Doesn't matter, right? There's not a quiz on the Beatles at the end of this. This is just for us to help us learn about the Bible. So for those of you who are listening on the podcast, we're not going to be able to include those songs on the podcast for you to listen to. But I encourage you to go to YouTube and listen to, first, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles and second to Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles. So let's start with the first one. Let's start with, I wanna hold your hand. So what's the melody like? How would you describe the melody? Is, is it sad or happy? Very upbeat and happy, peppy. Um, that's exactly right. Simple, yes, that's also very true, right? Uh, it's, the, it's the sort of song I sung to my daughters when they were really little, right? It has a positive, loving message. It's very accessible. Um, what's the instrumentation? What instruments are they using? Guitars. Guitars. We heard those guitars. What else? 
uh, hand claps, percussion, maybe some piano in there, drums, bass, all familiar instruments that we could pick out. What's the message of this song? I want to hold your hand. They're not hiding it. It's right there in the title. The message is I want to hold your hand. Um, true story. They had a version of this song where the lyrics were in German because they hung out in Hamburg for such a long time honing their craft. Um, and so the version in German is called Komm gib mir deine Hand, I think. It does not work nearly as well in German as you would perhaps suspect. Okay, so what's the, the second title is called, the second song is called Strawberry Fields Forever. What's the melody like for this song? Very discordant, says one person. Yes, that's certainly true. Complex. What else? Ethereal. Ooh, that's interesting. So, so yeah, what is, ethereal sort of means like kind of floating above the earth. Um, I heard one person say psychedelic. Yeah. What, anyone else want to describe it? I was struck by the contrast between, like, so the, the, the chorus and the title is Strawberry Fields Forever, which sounds like something happy, but the, the melody at some points seems happy and at other points seems threatening or, or sinister in certain ways. It's hard, to get it, hard for me to get a bead emotionally on what was going on in the song. What was the instrumentation like? Was it guitars, drum, bass? There was, right, there was what sounded like a flute. There were some, right. So this song was actually very creative for its time in pioneering the use of new instruments and new sounds. They actually, so there's not a real flute. They used a synthesizer that produced a flute sound and some of the funny sounds come from taking the tape of the recording and running it backwards, which of course everybody else started ripping off after they did it. Um, so they're using very unusual instrumentation. What's the message of the song? Nothing is what it seems. Nothing is what it seems. That's very interesting. Uh, other interpretations of the message. Awareness, awareness of what? What is really happening? Sure, yeah. Anyone else want to add one? I mean, I think those are two pretty good ones. So part of the challenge, right, is um, when I first heard this song, I did not like it. I certainly did not like it as much as I want to hold your hand because it's much less accessible. I want to hold your hand puts the cookies on the lowest possible shelf, right? Has a catchy message, and you immediately know what the song is about if you've heard the title. Strawberry Fields Forever does not do that. It's musically much more complex, and its theme is uh, harder to get to. So I think there's something about that. The chorus is, won't you take me down because I'm going to Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real. Nothing to get hung about. Strawberry Fields Forever. And I think there's an idea in there that reality is not what we think it is. Um, perhaps it's what everybody spends all their time getting hung up on and frustrated about is, isn't worth getting hung up on and frustrated about. Um, it's, a, 
it is attempting to gently escort us into a different perspective on reality, which is a very different sort of thing than trying to take us to a sunny day in the park holding hands with our boyfriend or girlfriend, right? So one of the amazing things is that these songs were released three years apart. It's 1964 and 1967. So you can tell there's a ton of creativity and maturation going on here. Okay, what the heck does this have to do with the book of Revelation? Where am I going with this? Revelation is strawberry fields, yes, exactly. That, right, Revelation puts the cookies on the top shelf. So, or more, Revelation is inviting us to look at the world differently. And to do that, one way of doing that would be to say, well, listen, I want you to look at the world completely differently than the way you look at the world now. <laughs> Another way to do it is to, to, to do what John does in the book of Revelation, where he says, right, I was on a desert island, and I had a vision, and I saw some crazy stuff. Let me tell you about it. Um, because that's a doorway into a different sort of way of looking at the world. Um, I think this sentence here at the bottom of the slide is a helpful way of putting it. Um, Re Revelation, like Strawberry Fields, is aiming to express crucial ideas in a non-direct, non-linear way in order to have a greater impact. So a lot of what's going on in Revelation is symbolic. Um, and that can have a more profound impact than just um, stating it in a direct way. Um, I had a teacher in my PhD days named Jeffrey Stout, who is a, a great teacher, and one of the things he liked to say when we were struggling with a text was no genuine reorientation of the reader without genuine disorientation of the reader. And that's one that stuck with me low these many years. No genuine reorientation of the reader without genuine disorientation of the reader. Um, so Revelation, in a way, is trying to take us on this journey where we will be benevolently disoriented <laughs> in the hope that we can be reoriented to the final victory of Jesus Christ. Let me share a few more things about um, the, the core theme of the book of Revelation, and then we'll stop and take questions. Um, so look at chapter one of the book of Revelation. Um, so despite the challenging, otherworldly nature of a lot of what goes on in Revelation, it does have themes. It is about something. And if you hold on to the key themes throughout the book, it will do a lot to help you understand more exactly what you're getting. So look at Revelation 1, and let's start with verse 9. So Revelation 1, verse 9. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, so this is a especially important place to start. As many of you know, why is, where is Patmos? Patmos is right off of Asia Minor in modern day Turkey. It's a penal colony. So John has been sent there because he is a Christian, 
perhaps because he was a Christian pastor or leader, perhaps because he baptized someone. We don't exactly know why, except that it's on account of his faith. He's sent there as a punishment. And one of the things he says is, um, I share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So I think those three um, nouns are really important. One good way of summarizing what Revelation is about is to say persecution, kingdom, patient endurance. Persecution, kingdom, faithful endurance. Around, around the time this was written, the Christian church was being actively persecuted by the Roman Empire. Um, and so there was something called the, um, there was a Roman emperor named Domitian who lived around 100 AD, who was not a fan of the churches and did a lot to try and persecute them. Um, depending on when the book was written, it may, um, they may have also been experiencing persecution at the hands of Emperor Nero, who was a swell guy, um, around the time this book was written. So we don't know exactly who the baddie was that was giving the church a hard time, but we know it was what was going on. And so he, um, he says, look, I, I, like all Christians, share in the persecution. I share in the patient endurance and the willingness to keep going in the midst of our struggle, and I share in the kingdom. What kingdom is he talking about? The kingdom of heaven right? The kingdom of God. He says, I have a share of it just as you have a share of it, and we share those things together. Similarly, um, let's keep going. After verse 9, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, this is verse 10, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So those are all cities along in western Turkey, right along the Mediterranean. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Uh, that's another really good theme verse for the book of Revelation. I was, I was the one who was dead, and now I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades, right? Or sometimes translated death and hell. So um, Revelation is written to a church that's undergoing great turmoil, great oppression and persecution. It's also written as a word of encouragement and confidence that Jesus is Lord, even in the midst of these very overwhelming, painful circumstances. He was dead and he is alive and he has the keys to to death and to hell. So whatever happens in our history, be it good or bad, it does not um, overrule the ultimate authority of Jesus. 
That's, the, that's a key part of Revelation's message. So if when you read Revelation, just keep this in mind, that what Revelation's is, is it's a word of comfort and encouragement to a church that's going through a very hard thing, and it's a word of confidence in the final victory of Jesus Christ, that he has the keys of death and hell. If you keep those things in your mind, you will not go too far off. Let me show you, let's talk a little bit about the environment of, um, the environment that the church was in. So, um, you just have to think yourself into the shoes of a Christian during the period this was written. So, um, it's easy to over-romanticize the church during the first couple centuries and think that they had everything together. They did not. They were saved by grace just like we are, but it was a very dramatic time. Um, so think for a minute, if you're a person in the ancient world, how big Rome was. So this is a, this is a country that before cars, before trains, before steam engines, goes from Spain all the, across North Africa and Southern Europe, all the way to Jerusalem, all completely centralized. Its military might is utterly unchallenged, and everybody paid tribute to the Roman emperor. Rome had such a big sense of itself that at a certain point in its history, they began to accord to their emperors divine honors. So, um, in, so, in some ways this is sort of gross and we don't do it anymore and we're glad we don't do it anymore. In other ways I look at it and I just think, well, they were just more honest about it than, than we are now, right? <laughs> um, so, the, the way things worked in the Roman Empire was that you were free to worship your own god as long as you gave a little pinch of incense to worship the Roman emperor as well and acknowledge his divine authority. And that, of course, is what Christians would not do. But think of how much pressure was exerted on Christians. So the Domitian persecution started from the emperor and came down, and it really was a concerted legal, military, political, cultural effort to force Christians to conform. Um, and imagine, I mean, it's, it's hard for us to imagine. Imagine how much courage and faith it took to resist that a whole lot. And so when we read Revelation, part of what we need to understand is this is, this is a much-needed word of encouragement to a church that's going through something very difficult indeed. And, um, you know, I pick up Revelation and I look at it and sometimes, you know, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily looking for that word, Sometimes I pick it up and I'm like, okay, Jesus, just help me to not be so cranky with my kids. And I read, then there's this dramatic, powerful word written to a suffering church at the end of the Bible, and it, I, I have to get myself into the right space where I can hear its message. Who knows, does anyone know what this photo is commonly called? Right, and where, where was it taken? Tiananmen Square, exactly. This is a, a famous photo just called Tank Man. So, uh, and who can quickly tell us, you don't have to worry about this, Don, who can quickly tell us what was going on when this photo was taken? Correct. 
Right, so this is, this is during the, the Tiananmen Square student protests um, when you know, People's Republic of China basically killed a bunch of student protesters who wanted a more democratic China or at least a loosening of repression. They wiped out massive numbers of them and this guy is single-handedly standing in front of a column of tanks. And the wonderful thing about this is that they actually stopped for him. They didn't run him over. Um, and they just captured this moment. No one knows what became of Tank Man. So he, was, uh, he stood there for a while, they stopped. Some of them got out and talked to him and tried to get him to move out of the way. Then they got back in the tanks and they started the engines again and he still wouldn't move. And finally, a group of people hustled him out of the way. And we don't know if that was like the Chinese secret police or if it was some friends of his. We have no idea what happened to him. But he's kind of immortalized in this photo. So what I want you to, I want you to take this photo with you when you, when you read or reread Revelation. Because this sort of situation is what, we're, what the church was experiencing in parts. You know, can you, do you have enough moral courage, enough conviction in your heart, in, in Jesus, not in democracy, to stand up against all the overwhelming military might uh, facing you in that situation? So although this photo was taken 2,000 years after Revelation was written, and although it um, pertains to the struggle for freedom and democracy, um, not exactly the struggle to be Christian, it's still very pertinent to our examining Revelation because having this issue in mind as we read it will help us understand its message better. Um, okay, let's stop here. So this is a lot of background. All of this was designed to help us read the book of Revelation in the right way, to have the right glasses on when we read it. I wanna make sure you're all with me at this point, and then we'll read uh, Revelation four and five. But before we do that, let me ask if there are questions. I'm still not clear on what all the references are to seven. And, sure. and again here, they're used a whole bunch. Yeah, so that's, I think that is um, part of the apocalypse genre. So the ancient world had strong beliefs that certain numbers were good and others bad. So seven was a number that was considered the perfect number. It considered, it conveyed the idea of wholeness or completion or perfection. So when he, when John says there are seven spirits of God, he doesn't think that there are actually seven spirits of God. He means God's spirit is active and complete and perfect. So similarly, he chooses that number intentionally in the different phases of his revelation. So there's, you know, what, seven trumpets and seven seals and what have you. Yeah. Okay. So we'll go on to Revelation 4 and 5. So um, this is a little bit longer of a reading. So what I'd actually like to do is um, I'll read the first few verses of Revelation 4, and then I'd like us to take turns passing the mic and reading it out loud. If we could do that, that would be great. Um, that will give you a break from hearing me. Okay. Did we all find Revelation 4? Yes. Okay. I'm going to start out, and then just raise your hand, and Dawn, our microphone ambassador, will come to you. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, 
and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There are the seven spirits. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside, day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. The scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls filled full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, The Lamb is worthy, the Lamb who was killed. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They also sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne 
and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God and the Lamb. All right. Amen. So take a minute, turn to a neighbor, ask a question, come up with a comment or two, and then we'll come back together. All right, why don't we come back together? So, did you guys figure it out? Did you nail it all down? Um, <laughs> well, it's an example of literature that's trying to reorient us and our perspective. Okay, questions or comments, what do you got? Okay, because several of us are studying Exodus, where the other girls go? There we are. Studying Exodus on Wednesday mornings, right. as I was reading this text, I'm going, whoa. It's like a huge flashback to Exodus 38, mm -hmm. 37, about the directions that God gave Moses about building oh, the tabernacle. And it talks about the prayers of, of the incense is representative of the prayers going up to heaven. It has the lampstand. Um, and the, um, well, the table for, um, uh, the table of presence for the bread. Anyways, the contents of the tabernacle are reminiscent of what we just read sure. in Revelation. Yeah. So one of the tough things about the book of Revelation is that there, he, so Paul will quote scripture and he'll let you know when he's doing it, generally speaking. Revelation alludes to scripture, but unless you know what it's doing, it can be very hard to pick up on. So for instance, I think that connection to Exodus and to the, the tabernacle and the presence, I think that's brilliant. And it, in fact, what we might expect if it's describing God's dwelling place, um, the book of Isaiah pops up all over the book of Revelation. But you have, again, it's not quoted so unless you have a study Bible that says, oh, by the way, this is an allusion to Isaiah so-and-so, or unless you're really smart, you won't know. Um, Daniel is, is in this book. There's a lot of allusions to scripture. Yes. Cindy's Bible here has, it's an NIV study Bible, and a lot of, a lot of it's written in red. And generally in the Bible, the words of Jesus are written in red. Yeah. So what do you think this is all about? Oh, come on now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, uh, you're, I don't know. I would guess a good look through the introduction uh, of a book like that might explain. I mean, if it's a red letter Bible and the words of Jesus are in red, it maybe it's saying the words we're hearing here are, in, are from Jesus, but your guess is as good as mine. Maybe some celestial being, yeah. I mean, so John is certainly having a dialogue with God here. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm sorry. So my observation is to Karen's point and brilliant insight from Exodus, indeed it is, is you told us in the very beginning how important it was to contextualize what it mm -hmm. was, what it is that we are reading. Yes. And I think this is an a pretty amazing example of that mm -hmm. because 
the hearers of these words and the readers of these letters would have understood this in ways we can barely comprehend mm. or, or we can take a stab at it. Um, but I think context is everything. That, that's true. That, those are your words, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't disagree with you because you're just quoting me. So yes, brilliant. Whoever taught you that was a brilliant, brilliant person. Yeah, right? So um, it's so much easier to learn, you know, a, a pound of, an ounce of insight is worth a pound of Bible study, <laughs> um, right? I mean, it's just scratching at it with no background is really hard, but digging in a little bit and understanding what's going on will take you much further, especially with a challenging text like this one. Um, anyone else want to ask anything or make a comment? Beginning. You're glad that I shared at the very beginning. Yes, that we should look at this as um, something that was not unusual mm. for the people at that time. Yes. Because that helps me, and that we should look at it that it could be happening in the here and the now for them. Right. Yeah. So. I'm glad those are helpful to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. That to us, this is wild and crazy. To them, it would have been less so. And to them, it would have been just as much a commentary on the present as a word about the future. Yes, that's very important. And, and remember, I mean, so um, part of the reason I enjoy Revelation as a book of the Bible, you, so um, you know how, so I'm a very mediocre runner. I usually would run three miles at a time, about a 10 minute mile, which is a very slow layperson's pace. My cousin is long and limber and lean and runs marathons in like 16 minutes and he's amazing. I was never that sort of person. Eventually I had to give it up completely because I have a bad knee. But um, I talked to him about these impossible runs that he would do and he would sort of smile and he'd be like, oh yeah, that one's really tough because you got all those switchbacks up there in the foothills before you get to the mountain peaks and then you get up to the mountain peaks and it's freezing and then you come back down and you're in the desert. And I would think, what are you doing, you bizarre person? Why are you talking about this? But I have a similar attitude towards Revelation. Like, Revelation is an excellent test case for what Holy Scripture is like. So Scripture in some parts is so direct and simple and applicable, you can read it to a five-year-old and they will understand it and think, right, I'm gonna do that. And then you get the book of Revelation, which is not direct and applicable, not in the same way. And um, part of what we, gotta, what we have to do is take the Bible as it is. It's God's word to us, and some parts of it are challenging. And it's okay if it's confusing or difficult or if we like other parts of the Bible better. It's all right. Um, so we can, this is a good, like my friend chuckling as he thought of the hills, the more comfortable we'll grow, we grow with Holy Scripture, the more we'll come to appreciate the unique idiosyncratic nature of Revelation um, and the unique things it has to teach us. Let me steer us to a couple points about Revelation. Okay, so we get this amazing description of God's heavenly throne. Um, in, this is in chapter four. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. 
and I will show you. So remember, this is a feature of the apocalypse genre where the, the narrator or the speaker is taken on a kind of a cosmic journey, right? That's exactly what's happening here. Um, at once I was in heaven, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. Um, and then skipping down to verse six. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with a face like a human face, and the fourth creature like a flying eagle. So um, there's been a lot of ink spilled in Christian history trying to figure out exactly what those four living creatures are or what they represent. Um, and there's actually a wonderful history of interpretation. So some people say that they represent the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I used to serve at a Lutheran congregation called St. John's Lutheran Church, and our monthly newsletter, this is a really inside baseball thing, our monthly newsletter was called The Eagle, because the eagle in Revelation was always said to represent St. John. That's one way of interpreting it. Other people say um, it has to do with the, um, it is a, they are a symbol of creation. So you get the lion, which is the fiercest, uh, the fiercest, bravest animal. You get the ox, which is the strongest. You get the eagle, which is the highest and most noble. And you get the human being who is the most wise and crafty. Um, most scholars think it has something, it, that this is, something like this is kind of, is the right answer that it represents creation um, being fulfilled by returning to worship its creator in God. But again, part of what you see here is that um, like a good poem, um, there's always another interpretation that may be good. And it's okay, you know, I think there are better answers and worse answers and better interpretations and worse interpretations of a book like Revelation. But I think part of the point of it and part of what keeps us going back to it is that there's, um, there's such imaginative power in the story that it's telling us that we, we can't always pin it down to just one thing. Does that, does that make sense when I say that? All right, I'm gonna try and keep going. Why does John's vision focus so much on heavenly worship? And why might heavenly worship matter to a church that was being oppressed or persecuted? Keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. So, do you want to say more about that? <laughs> Thank you, John. If they were struggling and oppressed, he was saying, you know, the, there's hope. Don't give up. This is what it looks like in the end. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So part of what is so important about this, right? So you're writing to a persecuted church. The first several chapters prior to this, chapters two and three are God's seven words to the seven churches. And then you get this, it's like cut to heaven and to God's throne room. Why the heck would you do that? Well, keep talking to those seven churches. They certainly need to hear what you had to say. Well, no, what Revelation is doing is, um, offering a different context for God's word to the church. And God's word to the church is, remember who's on the throne. Remember who's really on the throne. And of course, this is, you know, this is a time in 
church history when there were lots of other people sitting on lots of other thrones who claimed and demanded the ultimate loyalty and allegiance of Christians. Um, and this is a way of reminding them, no, that they are not the ultimate and final authority. Um, there's also, there's a long tradition in the church, particularly in its celebration of Holy Communion, of seeing worship as a place where the church, the boundary between earth and heaven gets a little fuzzy. So it's, it's when we sing hymns on earth, it's not just that we're imitating the heavenly choir upstairs, it's like we're actually joining it. And so I think what you see in Revelation 4 and 5 is this idea of like, Look, I've been to heaven, and I can tell you that in heaven, they are doing some of the exact same things we are doing down here when we worship Jesus. And that our worship is worship of the true God, the real God who is really the creator and redeemer of this world that we're in. Um, and it's not... Yeah, there's, there's a enormous intentionality that, um, about depicting heavenly worship in such a way as to give strength and encouragement to ordinary Christians in their worship of everyday life. Are you with me when I say that? Okay, I, see, I saw more nods that last time. Um, let me, I wanna read you a quotation so this is a book called Reversed Thunder. It's by Eugene Peterson, the guy who did the message translation. I recommend this to you highly. This is a commentary on the book of Revelation. It's pretty accessible. Um, it's, it's really good. And here's one of the things he says. Christians worship with a conviction that they are in the presence of God. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks and reveals, creates and redeems, orders and blesses. Outsiders observing these acts of worship see nothing like that. They see a few people singing unpopular songs, sometimes off key, someone reading from an old book and making remarks that may or may not listen, interest the listeners, and then eating and drinking small portions of bread and wine that are supposed to give nourishment to their eternal souls in the same way that beef and potatoes sustain their mortal flesh. Who is right? Is worship an actual meeting called to order at God's initiative in which persons of faith are blessed by his presence and respond to his salvation? Or is it a pathetic and sometimes desperate charade in which people attempt to get God to pay attention to them and do something for them? And of course, the answer of the, book of, the, of the book of Revelation is that it is the former. When we worship, we are meeting at God's initiative and we are participating in something enormous. We worship the ultimate ruler and redeemer of the cosmos. This is of enormous significance to a church that was hurting. Let's talk about the scroll in chapter 5. So, um, in ancient times, the scroll 
was um, a source of writing. So remember, the Bible was written in a largely pre-literate era. So stuff being written down was very special and unique. Um, a scroll was often a means by which a king would communicate with others or propagate his laws and wishes. Um, in the context of the book of Revelation, what the scroll means, the scroll is expressing the will of who? God, the sovereign on the throne. And um, what you see in Revelation is that the scroll is sealed. It can't be opened. So nobody knows what the plan and purpose and will of God is. Um, this is why, this is in chapter 5, verse 4. John begins to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What is life about? What is the nature and purpose of our journey through life? Is there a final destiny for us? These are religious questions. And there are many people, not here in this sanctuary, but many people out in the world, in America, throughout our planet, who are basically in the same position as John in verse 4, where the meaning of life is shut and sealed and locked up. And they just say, well, that's the way it is. I guess you can never know. Who knows why we're here? We're all just muddling through. We have to do the best we can. That's a, that is a live option in the world we live in, as it was a live option for John 2,000 years ago. But then you get verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That is of course a reference to Jesus. And you know it's a reference to Jesus because of verse six. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Think of, this is, of course, the whole Bible in a nutshell, right? It's a breathtaking illusion because Revelation, by saying Jesus is the lamb who was slaughtered, takes us back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is the Passover lamb sacrificed to create a new covenant. He takes us back to the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians. And, of course, it also takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus, where the, the Passover lamb is part of God's creating freedom for his people, who knows the story of Doubting Thomas? So the story of Doubting Thomas, um, not the story of Tom Rose, the story of Doubting Thomas in the Bible. So Thomas says, I won't believe Jesus has risen unless what? Right, I, I put my fingers in the hole where they put the spear and put my finger in the hole where the nails went. And in the Gospel of John, the risen Jesus shows up and says, right, here you go. You know, you wanted to see it, here it is. So the risen Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body still bears the wounds of his faithfulness. There's something very similar going on here in Revelation 5 where the lamb is slaughtered and is still alive but, but bears the marks of having been killed. Something similar going on here. Um, it's absolutely crucial that the lamb who was slain is the one who is capable of opening the scroll. Um, verse nine, everybody sings a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Um, in the Lutheran church, the church I was ordained in, there's actually, when we celebrate Holy Communion, we often sing a piece of music called the Gloria, where we sing the song found in verse 12 and verse 13. Um, Worthy is Christ the Lamb who is slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Um, it's absolutely essential that the one who can open the scroll, the one who is capable of revealing God's will and the final conclusion of God's plan is Jesus, is the lamb who is slain. So one way of thinking about it is go back to John 1. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 1, and we talked about that word logos, which means sort of reason or plan, um, and in Greek philosophy, it has this idea of God's um, um, rational purpose for the world. And the Gospel of John is totally unique because it says the Logos is not just an idea or a set of principles, but it's a human being. It's Jesus the Jew, whose mom was Mary and whose father was Joseph. And the ancient world went, right? So here in the, gospel, here in the book of Revelation, it's the same idea kind of stood on its head. So where the Gospel of John says, okay, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos became flesh in Jesus Christ. God's creative plan for the whole world became flesh in Jesus. What you have here at the end of the Bible is this idea that there's a hidden sealed scroll that represents God's um, plan and will for the world and how everything will be wrapped up and brought to conclusion at the end of time. And no one knows what that scroll is, but who knows? The lamb who was slain. Jesus alone opens the scroll and unlocks the mystery of God's creative plan. So we don't know everything about what's going to happen. There are still a lot of mysteries from our vantage point as human beings, but the one thing we know is that Jesus is the one who unlocks those mysteries. Jesus is the one who is worthy to do it and is the uh, secure and certain guide to those mysteries. This goes back to the, to the context in which Revelation is written. So if you're a persecuted church, what you wanna know is that um, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is worth suffering for. Jesus is worth struggling for. And what John the Revelator is telling us here is exactly that, right? That, um, Jesus alone is the one who unlocks the scroll of what God intends for humanity, what God wants us to do, who God wants us to be, and what, how God will finally put this world to rights. That's what God intends. Okay, first takeaway. No genuine reorientation of the reader without genuine disorientation of the reader. So just write that down on the cover of the inside cover of your Bible and you'll be glad you have it sometime, okay? So like one of my favorite gospels is the gospel of Mark. The gospel of Mark is about this idea. The gospel of Mark is about a bunch of disciples trying to follow Jesus and failing to follow Jesus. And in that process, in that disorientation, discovering more and more truly who Jesus really is. Something similar is going on for us in the book of Revelation that... Um, 
the book of Revelation is one of the tools God uses to shake us up and think, okay, you think you know what Jesus is like. You think he's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and a nice white European Jesus, and all of these stuffs, all of these ideas that domesticate God, and the book of Revelation comes along, and it's like a slap to the face. It's like a bucket of cold water to the face. No, it's not that way. It's like this. You think life is about earning a big salary and being successful at work and having a bigger house than everyone else and having a nice cottage in Michigan for the weekend, blah, 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 blah. Guess what? It's not like that. All of that stuff is trivial garbage compared to the grandeur that's going on in heaven, compared to the incredible worship that's going on in heaven that you can participate in anytime you want if you have the guts to walk into your local church. That's what Revelation is trying to say. No genuine reorientation of the reader without genuine disorientation of the reader. Um, for that reason, it is crucial not to approach the book of Revelation as a mystery to be solved or a code to be decoded. If someone starts talking in those terms, don't listen to them. Okay? Whenever someone says, I figured it out, and I got the code to the book of Revelation, and if you look at the Greek, it means that Jesus is going to come back May 3rd, 2033. No, do not do that. Okay? The reason is because, A, Revelation doesn't do that, and the history of the church is full of people who thought they had decoded it, and they were, they're always wrong. But second, it gets the genre wrong. Revelation's not a mystery. It's an apocalypse. It's designed to shake us up and reorient our imaginations around the victory of the crucified lamb. And if you're doing this other thing, if you're trying to solve a puzzle, you're not doing this thing. You're not paying attention. You're not reorienting your imagination. First takeaway. Second takeaway. Worship matters because it reveals what is true. Um, worship is serious stuff. <laughs> It is an exercise in reminding ourselves what's really true and who is really in charge. This is pertinent for the church when the book of Revelation was written because they were surrounded by other authorities and powers that seemed stronger um, and probably were stronger in worldly terms. Um, it's also, I think it is a perennial word to the church. Remember what is really true. Remember what is really in charge. Um, some of you know I went to Egypt in 2020. I only went for two weeks, but I talk about it all the time. You would think I was there for like eight years, how, how often I talk about it, because it was an incredibly inspiring trip. Egypt's about 90% Muslim, 10% Christian. There are many wonderful Muslim folks there who like and respect and admire their Christian neighbors. But there is a fair amount of discrimination directed at Christians. Imagine what it would be like if, here in America to be part of a society where only 10% of the population was Christian and 90% were Zoroastrian or Hindu or Buddhist or something else. Right, we're, we're, we're getting closer, right? Um, if current trends continue, we'll see. The, the point is, imagine one of the disciplines the church needs to stay true, to stay online with its message, is regular worship that tells us the truth about who God is and who we are. And God's 
authority over the world we live in. Second thing, third thing, um, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Um, the book of Revelation, one of the central themes of this book is the centrality of Jesus Christ for our life and faith. So like we said, he is the one who reveals God's plan for the whole world. Um, just as he was the Logos in the beginning with God, he is now the one whose life reveals God's redemptive intention for the conclusion of the whole world. Um, in this, Revelation is very much like the rest of the Bible, right? The Gospel of John thinks this. So go back to the very first week we did this. We talked about reading the Bible as um, a book about Jesus. Um, and there's, um, there is a long and wonderful tradition in the church of seeing the scroll in Revelation 5 as also the Bible. So the Bible is the book that Jesus opens and reveals its meaning. Maybe that's another way of reading that passage. Um, so I think it's an appropriate place to conclude this study, right? So Jesus is the one who discloses God's um, final and ultimate purpose for all creation, for everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. And he's also the one that discloses to us the meaning of the Bible. Um, and the Bible is fundamentally a book about Jesus Christ that helps us know him better. Um, those are my three takeaways. No genuine reorientation without genuine disorientation. Worship matters, and Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Um, thank you all so much for attending this class. Uh, I feel like I could talk for six more hours, but it's time to stop. Um, thank you all so much for participating and attending these last several weeks. God bless you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well.